Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open with me to John chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses uh, 14 through 18 this morning. And as you're turning there, uh, Francis Schaeffer uh, once told a story about a, uh, a prominent government leader uh, that had been invited uh, to address a group of student leaders in Washington. And uh, this government leader had decided to speak on the topic of restoring values in our culture. And after he, he finished, there was a, a brief moment of silence, uh, and there was uh, somebody in the audience, uh, a man uh, from Harvard University, who, who stood up and, and asked, he said, Sir, upon what base do you build your values? And there was a, a brief moment of silence that was quite tragic for the speaker because after that moment of silence, the speaker said, I do not know. He didn't know what foundation he was calling these people that he had just spoke to about how to restore values and how to, how to do the right things. He didn't have any idea of what type of foundation would support the things that he was claiming. He was calling the youth of America to return to a system of moral values, but offering them nothing to build it upon. Dr. Schaefer remarks that he was a man trying to tell his hearers not to steal the company funds and run off to Morocco, and yet he gave them no reason why they should not do that. Uh, So you see, uh, the foundation of what we believe is of the utmost Importance. This government leader had forgotten about the foundation. He didn't know uh, what he was building upon, and therefore he couldn't call others to build upon anything. He had plenty of advice, but no foundation. And that's oftentimes uh, what we desire. Oftentimes we desire uh, advice. We desire answers. Now, we want uh, counsel that will fix our problems and fix them fast. But we want... Answers. We love to hear of right practice. Tell me what to do. Tell me how to fix the situation in my life. But we don't often enjoy or we're not as excited to hear about right doctrine concerning how we are to, to think and what we are to believe. But those are the very foundation of what we must build upon. Oftentimes we love to look at houses, right? But we don't love to go looking at foundations. Right? It's not quite the same excitement uh, as you go and, and look around. Well, is this foundation, does it have any cracks? Is it secure? That's generally not the first thing that you're excited to look at at a house, is it? But that is what we must become concerned with. And as we have looked at the first 18 verses of John's gospel in the past, uh, this 18 verses that make up what was known as the prologue or the introduction to John's gospel, what these verses do is they introduce us to the foundation of our faith. They introduce us, they tell us what is foundational, the foundational truths to what it means to be a Christian. And as we have seen in weeks past, the foundational truth of all Christianity is that Jesus is God. We see that in John 1, verse 1. So John begins his gospel and he refers to Jesus as 
the Word. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what we see is that this Word is the creator and sustainer of all things, that He is the source of life and light. He is the one that we are to believe in and look upon. We saw that last week in verses 12 and 13. And while the deity of Jesus has been on display, we also need to understand that he is truly God, but he is also truly man. And that's what we will begin to see in verses 14 through 18. That Jesus is both fully human and fully divine. Uh, This is a a truth that we must hold uh, in tension, and it was uh, a truth that the early church uh, fought to defend for the first few hundred years in church history of that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And as we look at verses 14 through 18 this morning, we will see this truth clarified and solidified. We'll see who he is as both God and man, what he has done. And then also John the Apostle will explain to us why we need to believe it. And those are the, exactly what we need to understand, to comprehend, to remember who Jesus is, what he has done, and why we need to embrace those things. And John is writing to convince us. He's writing a persuasive essay for the high schoolers in the room, if you've ever had to do that. right? He's writing to convince us. And if we remember that the bigger picture of this whole gospel, John is writing so that we might believe. That's the purpose. That is what he's trying to convince us of. And he's not just trying to convince us to believe in Jesus, but he's also trying to convince us what we need to believe about Jesus. Now, I've I've said it before, and I won't say it for the last time even now, but what we believe about Jesus is just as important as believing in him. Because are you believing in a Jesus of your own making? Is he your invisible friend, Jesus, or is he the Jesus of Scripture? The Jesus that John the Apostle writes. The Jesus that Jesus himself claims to be. The Jesus that we believe in needs to be that Jesus. And in these verses we will see the glory of Christ. And what makes him glorious. What makes him worthy of our worship and our deserving of our attention and our absolute allegiance. And what we're going to see in these these five verses are going to be three arguments of why we should believe in Jesus as the God-man. Please read along with me. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And what we will see 
is that again, as, as John writes to convince us, he's going to present three arguments to us for why we need to trust and believe wholeheartedly that Jesus is the God-man. And the first argument that he's going to present is that the humanity of Jesus was seen as he lived among men. And this is in the first portion of verse 14, where John writes that, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now imagine if we were reading the gospel for the, for the first time. We're reading these words. This is our first introduction to Christianity. We don't know anything else about what John is going to write later. If we're just reading this, what question it keeps, would keep popping up in our mind? Who is the word? Who, who or what is this who is with God the Father at the beginning of time? He is God, and yet he was also with God. Who is the Word? And now suddenly the Word is becoming flesh. What we begin to see in this paragraph is John is making this leap from from talking about the Word, the characteristics, his divine nature, to now beginning to say, this Word is Jesus, the one I'm calling you to believe in. The Word who was God and was with God is the source of life and light. He became human. And when the Word became human, He didn't stop being God. He didn't cease to be who He was prior, but something was added to Him. That now full divinity now has full humanity as well. Kind of similar to the way uh, a woman becomes a mother. Right? Something is added to her. Nothing is taken away. But now she is a little different from what she was previously. And when the word became flesh, full humanity was added to full divinity and in a permanent and irreversible addition. There was no undoing it. That's what becomes clear here. And it's also interesting to note and important to note that John says, and the word became flesh. He didn't say the word became human. And what he's also trying to do in in emphasizing this, that Jesus came in the flesh, there was a false teaching at this time. It had begun in the middle of the first century. And that said that Jesus was only a spirit. That he didn't have a physical form. He didn't have a physical body. Because in Greek philosophy at this time, anything that was physical was believed to be evil. And anything that was spiritual was believed to be inherently good. So how can they say that Jesus had a physical body if they believed that that was evil? And that's why the the inroads of Greek philosophy are kind of what John is responding to a little bit here. The, The word became flesh, clearly and distinctively saying, no, Jesus was physical. He had had a flesh and bone body. Now, he wasn't just a a spirit. Uh, and this this false teaching became known as uh, docetism because of the the idea of the, the Greek word for to seem. They would just say, "Hey, it just it only seemed like Jesus had a physical body, but he really didn't." So John says, "No, the Word became flesh. He became fully human. And not only did the Word become flesh, but the Word came and to live among men." That is what he says. It says. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that, that word for dwelt, the idea of taking up residence, of pitching your tent, of tabernacling. And he, he came and had a camp out, so to speak. He was with us for a time. And he came 
and lived among men. Now, and again, if you were if you were reading this for the first time, say you're you're a Jew living in the first century, and, and you're reading this, and and you see, hey, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He he tabernacled among us, and then look at the next statement in verse fourteen, and we have seen His glory. Now, if you're a Jew reading this, what would immediately come to mind is something from the Old Testament. When the glory of God came to dwell with the people of Israel. At the end of the book of Exodus, now you can, you can turn there if you'd like, or I have the, the verses here. The end of the book of Exodus is, is very important. They, uh, the book of Exodus, at the beginning, the people of Israel are slaves in Egypt, and at the end, they are worshiping God in the wilderness because they have built the tabernacle and the glory of God has come and come down upon the tabernacle. Listen to these verses. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35. says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so what's, what's important to note there is now at the end of Exodus, where is God in relationship with his people? He is, he is with them. He is among them. Where the tabernacle was, there's 12 tribes of Israel and there was three on each side of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is right in the middle and everybody would have seen this glory cloud that descended upon the tent of meeting, upon the tabernacle. Everybody would have seen it. God's now living with his people. Which is why in the, the book of Leviticus, every, everyone's favorite Old Testament book to read, uh, it, it's all about sacrifice, how to do these sacrifices. Well, sacrifice was the way to be in right relationship with God, and it's all about holiness. But why, why does, why to emphasize sacrifice and holiness? Well, you better walk in holiness when a holy God is living among you. Right? Suddenly, the, the, the God who is, uh, who will judge sin, and can't be in the presence of sin. Suddenly he's there with you. Yeah, that, that's why the call to holiness in Leviticus is the big emphasis. But as, as we think about that as our, as our backdrop to this, now think about what this verse is saying. That God is no longer coming down in a glory cloud to be in a tent among his people. What did he do? God is now in and among his people in a much more significant and intimate way. God became a man and then came and tabernacled among his people. This this paradox is now here, that in Jesus we have both flesh and glory. Like, how can that be? How can How can God become a man, still reveal his glory, but yet be confined in flesh? There's much to to think about here, but this is this is something that we need to to ponder and probably don't think about often enough uh, of the, just the beauty of uh, what is known as the incarnation. Now, there's a particular month of the year that we focus on this, right? December, uh, because we, we we think about Christmas, God becoming a man to save us. But this is something that is worthy of our our meditation and our thinking year round. This isn't something to relegate to just the month of December. And 
And we need to pitch our tents on this verse. The pun is intended. Uh, I know it's a bad one, but uh, listen to this from from someone, a church father named Junius the Younger. And he wrote about his reaction to first reading this passage in John's Gospel. He says, My father, who was frequently reading the New Testament and had long observed with grief the progress I had made in infidelity, had put that book in my way in his library in order to attract my attention. If it might please God to bless his design, though without giving me the least information of it. So here you have uh, a young man whose dad was reading the New Testament, and his dad just kind of left it out for him to read. Hey, son, I think this might be helpful for you as you pursue infidelity and you're you're wandering away from the God who has made you. Maybe just, just read this. Let me put it here and walk away. And this is what Junius writes. At the very first view, although I was deeply engaged in other thoughts, that grand chapter of the evangelist and apostle, speaking of John, presented itself to me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. I read part of the chapter and was so affected that I instantly become struck with the divinity of the argument and the majesty and authority of the composition as infinitely surpassing the highest flights of human eloquence. My body shuddered, my mind was in amazement, and I was so agitated the whole day that I scarcely knew who I was. Nor did the agitation cease, but continued till it was at last soothed by a humble faith in Him who was made flesh and dwelt among us. Think about his response of it. He just thought about what this verse is saying. That the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the universe into existence, humbled himself, became a man, came to his creation to live among his people. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 echo this same truth. And they're shown to be that the humility of Christ is held up as an example for us to follow, to emulate. Philippians 2 says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that is what we should meditate upon year-round. As I've said, it's not just something that we should focus on one month out of the year. But this is an, this is an everyday truth that we should marvel at, to be amazed that God would care about us, would love us. Later on, we're going to see that, that God sent his son into the world because he loved the world, that in love he sent his son after us to come and save us. And just the majesty and glory of this, those simple words, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. His deity and his humanity are on display as he lived among his people. That is the first argument that the Apostle John is going to make of why we should believe and trust that Jesus is the God-man, because, hey, he was here with us. There were eyewitnesses to both his humanity and his deity. It says that his, over and over again in 
this gospel, we're going to see that the glory of Christ, though not fully in, in radiance, uh, as we see in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a humble glory. And his glory is going to be revealed as he works miracles. If you just turn the page and look at chapter 2, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, speaking of Jesus turning water into wine, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The glory of Christ is going to be revealed in who he is and what he does. And that's the first argument that the Apostle John is going to make of why we should trust and believe in Jesus as the God-man. And the second argument that he's going to make is going to be in the second half of verse 14 all the way through verse 17. Uh, it's going to have some some components to it or some smaller arguments to it. But what John is saying there is that the glory of Jesus was seen by his disciples. Read along with me. It says, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see in this is, as John speaks of the glory of Christ, is we're going to see four statements that he makes that are going to advance his argument of this is the glory that was seen by the disciples. He's going to describe this glory. And the first statement he makes is that the glory that was seen by the disciples was the unique glory of the Son, or is the unique glory of Christ as the only Son of God. And this is in the second half of verse 14. Now we have seen, we have beheld, we have carefully observed His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what John is doing, he's saying Jesus has the glory that belongs to Him because of who He is. Because of His special and unique relationship with God the Father, Jesus has a certain glory to Him. And this uh, that that little word, some of you have the NASB, others may be reading from the ESV or, or other translations. And the NASB translate this Greek word as the only begotten, the only begotten son. The ESV says the only son. And I think the ESV is a little bit more accurate there because the emphasis of that little word is not that Jesus was begotten, but on his uniqueness. Uh, the fact that Jesus is unique. Uh, he is in special relationship with God the Father. Uh, and the idea, especially in, in the context of what do we see in verses 12 and 13? It says that everybody who believes is given the right to become a child of God. So there are many children of God, but there's only one Son with a capital S. And that is what we see here, that Jesus has a glory that is unique to Him because of who He is. And then... John continues to describe this glory. The glory is full of what? Grace and truth. Uh, this is uh, the type of glory that Jesus displayed. Again, it wasn't uh, blinding brightness as we see the descriptions of the glory of God in the Old Testament. But Jesus' glory was a humble glory. Uh, and it's full of grace and truth. Well, grace is 
uh, is, I guess, the opposite of merit. It's the opposite of working for something. is being given it freely. Uh, and it is undeserved favor. And what's interesting is that John only uses this word grace four times in his entire gospel. And all four of them are in this paragraph. So what seems to be the emphasis of this paragraph? The, the grace of God, the grace of Christ, the grace of the word. Then he says grace and truth. And truth is going to be a theme that recurs throughout this gospel. It's going to be used 25 times. It's the idea, the quality of being in accord with what is true, with what is true in reality. That Jesus is full of grace and truth, and that is the glory that he displayed, that he manifested to the world around him when he came and dwelled among men. Now, some of you might be might be asking, well, how how do we know that that only that that only begotten, which is sometimes translated, how do I know that that's not saying Jesus is a created being? you might need some convincing. Well, because the the word elsewhere in Scripture is used in a way that clearly points that it's the idea of of only, the idea of a a unique relationship. So the word is is used in the the Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, in Genesis 22. So Genesis 22 is about Abraham being tested by God. God says, hey, I want you to go and offer your son Isaac to me as a sacrifice. And when God speaks of Isaac to Abraham three times, Genesis chapter 2, I'm sorry, Genesis 22, verse 2, verse 12, and verse 16, God speaks and says, take your son Isaac, your only son, the one whom you love. But there's a problem there because Isaac is not the only son of Abraham. What other son does Abraham have? Ishmael. And so when, does God know that? Yes. <laughs> he knows that. But what he is saying there, take, take your son, your special son, your unique son. Why was Isaac unique? Because he was the son of promise. He was the, the son that, that God said, it's Isaac who will inherit the promises that I've given to you, Abraham. So take your only son, the one that will have the promise, the one I've promised to receive the covenant, and go sacrifice him. And ultimately, even that is going to be a picture of Christ. But that's how we know that 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 word for, for only, only begotten, it points not to being born, it points to unique and special relationship. And the point that John is making here is that Jesus is the one and only Son of God, and He therefore has the glory that corresponds to His unique position and relationship with God the Father. That His glory is unique. And then secondly, the second statement that John makes is that His glory, the glory of Christ, is superior to John the Baptist because He existed first. We see this in verse 15. It's interesting that John the Apostle returns to John the Baptist. Uh, and, and points back to John the Baptist and says, hey, listen to John the Baptist's testimony. And, and what's important is the, the Jewish culture, uh, age and precedence, who came first, were very, very uh, important in determining someone's honor and the honor that you would show somebody. You would show honor to somebody who was older than you or who started something, uh, a ministry prior to you. 
And John the Baptist has Jesus beat on both of those counts. John the Baptist is six months older, even though they're cousins. John the Baptist is six months older, and he started his ministry before Jesus began his ministry. Because John the Baptist baptized Jesus, and that's when Jesus started his ministry. And yet, what's the testimony of John the Baptist? What is he saying here? John the Baptist cried out, and the emphasis there in the Greek is that it's as if John is still speaking. He's still crying out to all of us, to every single reader of the gospel. John the Baptist is saying, no, Jesus has a higher rank than I do. And what's John the Baptist's logic of that? He says, Jesus ranks before me because he was before me. Jesus existed before I did, so he he has a higher rank than I do. See, John the Baptist believed and understood that the story of Jesus' life didn't begin at his birth. It, it began in eternity past. That Jesus was pre-existent. He existed before creation. That is also why John the Apostle begins his gospel uniquely. He doesn't, he doesn't begin with the, the, the baptism of John as Mark does. He doesn't begin with the, the birth of Jesus as Matthew and Luke do. He begins in eternity past. So let's go back to Genesis. That's when the word was. And that's the logic that he presents. He says, hey, Jesus is superior to John the Baptist. Now that's what's being said here. He's greater than John the Baptist. Even though John is older and had ministered first, Jesus is greater. And then there's going to be a third statement about the glory of Christ. It's in verse 16. That his glory, the glory of Christ, is superior to every believer because he supplies grace to us. He gives grace to us. We don't give it to him. So he's naturally greater than we are. He's greater because he is the one who dispenses grace. And we have all received grace from him. And he dispenses grace out of his fullness. He's got grace to spare. We don't. He can give it away. We are those who are in need of grace. In need of his gift. And the inverse cannot be said. Jesus isn't in need of our grace. He doesn't need our gift. But in what way have we all experienced the grace of God? Right? How have we all experienced it? Even maybe if someone's reading this who's not a believer. Well, there's something uh, in theological terms, and something that the Bible would identify as common grace. That the common grace of God is demonstrated and shown to all men. We sang about that. Uh, the, uh, in the Immortal Invisible, there's a line about the, the cloud uh, dispensing rain to everybody. I won't try and quote it because it's escaping my mind at this moment. But... The grace of God is why everybody in this room is alive. The grace of God is why every, that the rain falls upon the just and the unjust. Common grace is God feeding everybody and caring for everybody. There's common grace felt and experienced by every person in existence. And then there's a special grace. The grace of God that works to save believers. And the grace that is dispensed by Jesus. Look at verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
It's kind of a, a unique phrase there, that last, those last three words, grace upon grace. Grace after grace is literally what it is in the Greek. And the idea is of one blessing after another in quick succession without any interval in between. So think with me, uh, how many of you from California, you remember the beach, the ocean? The ocean's still there. We've moved inland. We don't get to see it as frequently. Uh, but when you go to the beach, what is, what's happening with the waves? They come, what wave comes and crashes on the sand. And then what does it do? It retreats and it goes back out. But before it can really go that far out, what else happens? Another wave comes crashing on. So there's always a wave going out and a wave coming in. And that's the idea here of the grace of God that is poured out upon us in Jesus Christ. The grace just keeps coming over and over again, unceasing. Do the waves ever stop? No. They keep going. And that is that is here, this unceasing, never-ending, this grace that can never be exhausted. And again, that's something that is important for us to think about and realize. And no matter what trials we are going through, will the grace of God be exhausted? Like no matter if, well, you know, I don't know if God can help me because I know like five other people in the church that are also going through something and he might be using all of his grace up on them. It's like, no, that's not the case. God doesn't run out of grace. He never turns out his pockets like I got nothing left. No. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. This is the apostle Paul in deep suffering, speaking about the character of God. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We can be okay with our weaknesses. We can be okay with our infirmities because it causes us to be dependent upon Christ. And His grace doesn't end. It continues to flow unceasingly. It is never exhausted. That is what we need to see and understand. That the grace that Jesus dispenses is a revelation of His glory. And that is what should point us to believing in Him as the God-man. And there's a, there's a fourth statement that John makes in, in verse 17. That His glory, the glory of Christ, is superior to Moses because He provides complete revelation. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, there's going to be a comparison here. John's going to compare Moses with Jesus. And as we read in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the greater Moses, that he is greater than Moses, and he did what Moses could not finish, what Moses did not do. And notice, it says that the law was given through Moses. So Moses was the mediator of the law. Speaking of the, the the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch or the Torah, that is what Moses was the mediator of. He wasn't the source of the law because who gave the law to Moses? God. So Moses just passed along what was given to him. It says, okay, God gave something to Moses and Moses passes it on to others. 
That's the point here. But now contrast that with what it said about Jesus. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The idea is Jesus is where grace and truth originate from. He wasn't given grace and truth and then passed it along. He's the source of grace and truth. He's where grace and truth begin. And then he dispenses it and gives it to others. That's the difference between he and Moses. Moses was a mediator. Jesus is the source of grace and truth. And this is not to say that the law was bad. The the idea here is that what was incomplete in Moses is now complete in Jesus. The grace of God is on display in the law. We, we just read that in Galatians, right? The law was good. It was our tutor. It helped us to see and understand that we needed Jesus Christ. So the law wasn't good. Grace and truth were present in the law, but in an incomplete and kind of a blurred way. But when Jesus came, he revealed grace and truth perfectly. So it's not, it's not a comparison of bad and good. It's a, it's a comparison between good and best of what is most clear in the person of Jesus. What's also really interesting here is that grace and truth when he says grace and truth came, that, that, that verb came is singular in the Greek. So let me explain what that means. Uh, he's not saying grace and truth, they came through Jesus Christ. He's saying grace and truth, it came through Jesus Christ. He's treating grace and truth as a unit, as being together. Like you can't divide them up. You can't have one without the other. They go together. And Jesus Christ is the source of that singular unit of grace and truth. And then we see, John doesn't do this often, of how this verse ends. It says that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John is going to use the name of Jesus over and over again, 237 times in this gospel. And that's over a fourth of the entire occurrences of the name of Jesus in the entire New Testament. But he only says Jesus Christ, attaching the title of Jesus. Christ isn't his last name. Uh, it's a title, meaning the Messiah, uh, meaning king. He only says Jesus Christ together on two occasions in his gospel. This one, and then John 17, 3, uh, in which he's... He's beginning his prayer and he says that this is eternal life. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's an emphasis and a title here that Jesus is the best, that he is the Messiah. He is the one to whom honor and authority and worship are to be given. And if you can bear with me, how many of you are sports fans here? Sometimes in the, in the discussion of, of sports fans, you can get into a, a debate on who is the GOAT. And you're like, what? Well, the GOAT is an acronym for the greatest of all time. Okay? Uh, and in certain sports debates, you can have debates on who is the greatest. Who's the, who's the greatest baseball player of all time? You know, is it Babe Ruth? 
Uh, is it Mickey Mantle? Uh, is it Willie Mays? Is it Mike Trout? Uh, same debate can be happened in basketball, right? Is it Michael Jordan or is it Kobe? Not Kobe, and I say that as a former Laker fan. Uh, is it LeBron? You know, they, they have these debates and this discussion uh, on, on who is the greatest. You can do the same thing about quarterbacks. Is it Joe Montana? Is it Peyton Manning? Is it Tom Brady? Who is the greatest? Endless arguments and debates. And it's really not something that really matters. Uh, and it's not something that's going to be settled. But what we see here in this paragraph is that John presents Jesus as the greatest of all time. As the one who is greater than John the Baptist. As the one who is greater than us because he dispenses grace to us. As the one who is greater than Moses. And, and think about it in, the, in this way. If, if you're speaking to, to a Jewish audience, who was the greatest prophet in the Old Testament? Moses. So this is not a, a statement to make lightly in saying that Jesus is greater than Moses. This is not something that would have been immediately embraced. But that is what John the Apostle is saying. That Jesus is greater than all of us. And that he is worthy and deserving of honor and glory and praise because of that. And so with this, we, you know, we, we have to just pause and say, do I believe in that Jesus? Is he the Jesus I believe in? That he is greater than all. That he is greater than everyone. Have I beheld the glory of Christ? Have I looked upon him in faith? Do I see him in that way? Do I believe that he has died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins and that my only hope of reconciliation and restoration with God is through him? Do I have that type of faith? Have I beheld Christ and seen his glory? And as we saw when we first began John's gospel. John is writing this, not because he was bored. He's not like, hey, what should I do with my time? Maybe I'll write a a 21 chapter book on who Jesus is. No, again, John is writing to convince us. And he's writing to convince us because this is the most important topic in human existence. How can I be in right relationship with my creator? How can I be in right relationship with the one who has given me life and breath and everything? And the Bible clearly says if you want to be right with the one who made you, if you want to be in peace with him, you must look to his son, Jesus Christ. You must look to him in faith. And I would urge you, if you have not done that, to look to him today. Leave all of your own efforts and energies behind because those won't save you. Christ is the only one who can save you. And we are called to look to him in faith. And I would urge you, plead with you to do that because that is the heart of the Apostle John. That is what he is trying to convince all of us to do, to look to Christ in faith. That's why he speaks of his glory here. That's why he speaks and says, look, I know this for sure because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then John is going to present a third argument in verse 18 third reason why we should believe in Jesus as the God-man. And this argument is 
that the invisible God is made visible to us by Jesus. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. John brings the prologue to an end with this verse. And it And as he concludes this introduction, he ends with the same ideas that he began with. Verse 1, John made it clear that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, John's going to say the same thing in verse 18. The idea of the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And what that is stating here is I think some would be appropriate for us to supply some commas uh, in this statement of the only God. The NASB says the only begotten God. Like, what is he talking about? Well, uh, at the end of the verse, when he says, he has made him known, it's literally that one. That one has made him known. And we'll discuss that in a second. But in referring to that one, he's he made three statements prior to saying that one. And the three statements are, the only, the idea of the unique one, and then you can, the implication is that he is God, so it's the only, comma, God, comma, and the one who is in the bosom of the Father. It's literally in the Greek, and the ESV says, who is at the Father's side. The emphasis that John is making is that Jesus, the Word made flesh, is God, the unique one, And he has a relationship with the Father that no one else has. That he has a close companionship and intimacy that only he has as the second member of the Trinity. And these three statements affirm the dual truth that Jesus is God and at the same time with God the Father. And the last statement in this verse it's a simple one. He has made him known. Again, there's, a, there's an emphasis that says that one has made him known. And that word for made known is, is where we get the, the word exegesis. The idea of explaining, pulling out of scripture and explaining. And what John is saying here is, it, is that Jesus Christ, the word became flesh, is the one who makes the invisible God, visible. He's the one who teaches us who God the Father is. So the implication is, can we know God the Father without the Son? No. Jesus is the one who teaches us about the Father, so we can't be in right relationship with the Father without knowing and understanding who the Son is. And if you look at that first statement in the verse, he says, no one has ever seen God. Well, what he's pointing to is, yeah, why can't we see God? Well, number one, God is spirit. God the Father is spirit. You can't see him. You can't behold him. And secondly, what happened in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned? They were expelled from the presence of God because of their sin. So we say God is spirit. He's holy. Man is sinful. He can't be in the presence of God. That's why we cannot see and behold God. Those are the two big reasons, but... As as John writes, he's also alluding to to another passage in the Old Testament. Now, if you turn with me backwards over to to Exodus chapter thirty three, Exodus 
So in Exodus 32, the nation of Israel rebelled against God. They sinned against God. Moses had been gone for 40 days, and Aaron's like, hey, let's worship something else. Uh, and so they make a, a golden calf, and they bow down to it as the one who has delivered them. Moses comes down. Uh, they get into some trouble uh, because of their idolatry. And then Exodus 33 and 34 are a conversation between Moses and God about what God is going to do in, to judge Israel for their rebellion. And in this conversation, over the course of this conversation, God says, hey, I'm, you just go up. Uh, or he says, I'm going to make a new nation of you. And Moses says, no, please remember your covenants. And in 33, verse 17, read along with me. Moses makes a request of God. He says, the Lord said to Moses, this is the very thing that you have spoken. This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and my glory passes by. I will put you in a a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses cries out to God and says, God, show me your glory. And God says, you can't handle the glory. You can't do it. You can't handle it. But what is he going to do? He says, hey, I'll, I'll hide you away, I'll tuck you away, and then I'll go past you. And you'll behold just a, just a little bit. Just a little bit of the glory is all that you can handle. Then look at chapter 34, verse 5. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's a very famous passage, one that's going to be quoted many times in the Old Testament because it's God's self-disclosure, right? He says, Moses says, show me your glory, And God says, all right, well, you can't behold that. You can't see that and live. So let me hide you away and then I'll pass by. And how does God reveal his glory? By proclaiming who he is. And what is it that characterizes God? At the end of verse 6, it says, abounding in, and then it's two words in the Hebrew. Steadfast love is a single word and faithfulness is a single word. And the idea of those two words, and I know it's, it's not as clear as we read the English translation. But that idea of steadfast love, it's God's covenant-keeping love. But the, the the emphasis there is that God doesn't have to love in that way. It's a gracious love, a, a love that is not dependent upon us reciprocating it. He loves, it's his gift to us. It's grace. 
And then that word for faithfulness is really the idea of true. The idea of truth. Elsewhere in the Old Testament it's translated in that way. In the Greek translation, those two words, steadfast love and faithfulness, would be the same two words that we see in John 1 in this passage. That Jesus Christ is full of what? Grace and truth. And that grace and truth are given out by Jesus. He is the one who dispenses them. The full glory of the Lord was too great for Moses. But he came, what he did behold, what he heard, was the glory passed by him and proclaimed in the character of God. And what do we see now? This becomes important now because now what we have in Christ is not just words spoken to us as the glory of God passes by, but we have the embodiment of grace and truth with us. The embodiment of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among men. And if we want to know God, we have to look to Christ. Hebrews 1 says this, begins with these verses. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the one who makes the invisible God visible to us. And if we want to be in right relationship with God, we need to look to Christ. But why is all of this so important? Why do we, why do we need to know who Jesus is? Again, because what we believe about Jesus is just as important as believing in him. Why should we believe that Jesus is the only one who is truly God and truly man? Well, that's what we see here in this passage. Because the humanity of Christ was seen right along with his deity because his glory was seen by his disciples and made evident that he was God. And because he is the one who teaches us and shows us what God is really like. He explains God to us. And as I said earlier, we love to hear about right practice, but we kind of skim over the right doctrine. We, we skim past it, say, let me get to the good stuff. Well, this is the good stuff. And if we don't understand this, we have nothing to build upon. And this is what establishes the foundation for our belief. This is what sets our feet firm and shows us that everything else should be motivated by who Jesus is and what he is able to do for us. And this has implications for every day, every moment of our life. Back in 1873, the, the missionary Hudson Taylor wrote to a fellow worker who was going through a very difficult trial. And he encouraged him with these words. This is what Hudson Taylor wrote. He says, The one thing we need is to know God better. Not in ourselves, not in our prospects, not in heaven itself are we to rejoice, but in the Lord. If we know Him, then we rejoice in what He gives, not because we like it, not because we think it will work good, but because it is His 
gift. His ordering and the like in what he withholds and takes away. Oh, to know him. Well might Paul, who had a glimpse, who caught a glimpse of his glory, count all things as dung and dross compared with his most precious knowledge. This makes the weak strong, the poor rich, the empty full. This makes suffering happiness and turns tears into diamonds like the sunshine turns dew into pearls. This makes us fearless and invincible. If we know God, then when full of joy, we can thank our Heavenly Father, the giver of all. When we feel no joy, we can thank Him for that. For it is our Father's ordering when we are with those we love, we can thank Him. When we yearn for those we love, we can thank Him. The hunger that helps us to feel our need, the thirst that helps us to drink, we can thank Him for. For what are food or drink without appetite? Or Christ to a self-contented, circumstance-contented soul? Oh, to know Him. How good, how great, how glorious our God and our Father, our God and Savior, our God and Sanctifier. To know Him. See, what this passage does, what it should do, is show us the greatness of Christ. And it should set our eyes upon Him so that we in our hearts desire to know more and more of Him. Because He is our Creator. He is our Savior. He is the one who is worthy of all our adoration and praise. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we come to thank you and praise you, to worship you. Lord, you are the source of grace and truth. You are the one who dispenses grace to us day in and day out. And Lord, we are so thankful for the never-ending, abundant grace that you pour out upon us. Your grace is never exhausted, Lord. How comforting that is to our hearts. Lord, may we walk before you in faith. First and foremost, a faith that understands who you are. As God and yet with God. As the word who has become flesh, who has dwelt among us. And yet also as the word who went to the cross to pay the penalty for our rebellion, to pay what we could never pay. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. We long to worship you. We long to know you more deeply, more intimately. And we long for that because you are the one who is then able to teach us who God is, who we are, how to be in right relationship with our Creator. So, Lord, we ask that you would continue to lead us and guide us, continue to instruct our hearts, explain God to us, and allow us to then worship you, echoing back to you who you are and what you have done. May we worship you in spirit and in truth now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to close with uh, one final song, and uh, Fred's going to lead us.